Hello, and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 28 on September 7th, 2017, coming to you at the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'll be bringing you an interview with Botan Anderson from One Scythe Revolution. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and institute updates. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook and find us on Instagram. You can check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org, and there you can find both of our podcasts, as well as information about joining and supporting the Institute and its research. This week I visited with Botan Anderson, the person behind One Scythe Revolution, one of the largest suppliers of size in the United States, located in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I'm here in... Uh... Hey. Hi, are you Botan? Yeah. Hi, Botan. Hi, I'm yeah. Scott. Hey, Scott. Nice to meet you. I need to pick up a scythe. Okay. <laughs> Botan lives in an old farmhouse, and because I was able to pick up my scythe in person, I was able to get a few tips and tricks from him in person. I'm gonna grab the blade uh -huh. by the rib, and then I grab a, the whetstone, I hold this end, and I grab it with my, particularly with my thumb and forefinger, and press down with the heel of my hand to create this upward pressure. Oh, okay. So I'm drawing it along the edge, grinding like a grindstone, okay. and at the same time moving it laterally, and then I come back and overlap. In your normal uh, course of using a scythe, how, how often do you stop to hone, and how often do you peen? Ten minutes, ten yeah, minutes. five, ten minutes, yeah. every couple of hours you have to peen it. And the majority of the honing is on one side and then you just take the burr off the other side, is that right? Right. Okay. The snath is the handle of the scythe, but Botan deals in the Austrian and sizes that are used in the Alps, which are lighter and straighter than the big curving ones you've probably seen in antique stores. Uh, a friend lent me a curved handled American one that's, you know, from an antique yeah. store. What's the functional difference today between the, so the snath of the handle here is straight with, looks like the handle has like an extension so it's more ergonomic, whereas these were bent I guess to be more ergonomic or how? The snath is designed to connect three points, your left and right hand and to the blade on the ground. And there's a bunch of ways of connecting those three dots. With the European snaths, well these are double curved but they have you know just a slight curve and then they have a stem that rises up. Mm -hmm. On the American side, they dispense with that stem riser mm -hmm. and instead curve the snab an extra amount to rise up to where your right hand would be. So it's more tradition, really, than straight ergonomics? That... It's a similar tool, mm -hmm. the American and the Austrian, yet they're different, quite different beasts. Yes, now it's some. What's a common misconception about the scythe? The main one is how people think it's used. Everybody assumes it's a slashing tool, and they assume this curve is just to hook the grass as you slash it. But actually, it's designed to slide on the ground and cut in the direction that the tip is pointing. You oh, okay. move the side blade in a forward direction that the tip is pointing in. And then the initial cutting action starts in the front section of the blade, and that's more of a sliding cut, a paper cut, like sure. a, okay. a thin edge sliding across the so, stem. And that starts cutting the grass and 
once the blade is engaged in cutting, there's a little bit of, as the grass gets cut and accumulates, it creates more resistance for the remaining stems so they can bend, they can't bend away as easily. And then as this cut material is accumulating in front, the rest of the blade can swing into a greater and greater slicing action. So basically the stems are getting cut along the length of the blade, not across it perpendicular. Exactly. That's the biggest misconception. So each pass would probably take about six inches or so, rather than the two feet or two and a half feet that the blade is wide. Everybody thinks the blade goes this way. Sure, perpendicular. Uh-huh. And, and it does cut. It works but... and get away with it until something breaks. <laughs> <laughs> In America, we have kind of a ridiculous notion of what a lawn is, like a manicured golf course, basically. Do you size your lawn here? Yeah. So it, it's not a one-inch tall lawn by any means, which is kind of a weird aberration anyway, but maybe four, four inches, kind of soft, feathered kind of looking lawn rather than a, than a putting green or anything well, like that. actually, when you mow the side, you mow so close to the ground that the lawn gets extremely short. So you actually... Uh, so how often do you mow your lawn? Well, uh, my problem is not a lot of time. The mowing doesn't take long. It's what to do with all the cut grass. But I need a place to, I need something to do with it. And what I want to do is uh, either make it into hay or compost it or use it as mulch. If I want a smothering mulch, if I want to start a new garden bed, I like to use the fresh cut grass and just pile it on. It creates a really heavy mat and builds the sod. Huh. If I'm Using mulch, put around plants, I like to dry it in the hay. I also make hay, store in haystacks. Used for my ducks in the winter, bedding. They eat the finer parts, the coarser parts get uh, manured. Use the deep bedding in, like, mm -hmm. you know, in the winter. And in between the layers, I just keep adding layers of biochar. That absorbs the uh, moisture and odors. Yeah, because my chicken nitrogen. coop in the winter gets a little uh, stinky. Yeah. <laughs> Even if I add litter every day. Yeah, I add a lot of biochar. And oh, go bio. Mm -hmm. I know you, everything's variable there are a lot of variables but if you were to mow let's say a half an acre lawn with a large 95 centimeter blade are you looking at a couple hours or uh yeah but it's a fun two hours how long have you been working with sides since 2001 okay what got you into them i um originally got into permaculture and natural farming in the 80s after I saw a film called The One Straw Revolution, and then I read the book, and it's just like, ah, oh, that's what I want to do. So that's where the name for One Scythe Revolution came from? Yeah, it's an illusion, The One Straw Revolution work. I think the scythe will make The One Straw Revolution work for a uh, tall Westerner. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the book. It's a Japanese farmer who had this epiphany and started trying to work with nature and instead of digging and fertilizing time, especially his rice field. He was into harvesting the rice and then putting all the straw back. He used to have ducks. After the straw was put back, he would let the ducks on to fertilize the straw. Is he the same guy who would uh, throw a handful of seeds and to his garden beds and just let them go, yeah. basically? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what I thought he was doing. But years later, after I came up with the idea of a scythe-based farm, I saw an old film and I realized, wait a minute, he had a scythe-based farm. He harvested the grains with a sickle, but the uh, forest gardens, where he's just tossing out the seed, he went around with his mountain sickle, which is a long-handled, two-handed sickle, and he would chop all the weeds around the daikon. So he was managing his natural farm. It wasn't just totally wild. He was also managing it with sickles and, and mountain sickles. So do you pick a grass that can withstand scything specifically? Do you pick the bluegrass for that reason? For scything, Timothy and Brome are really easy to mow. Well, you can mow anything. This is 
the finer the stem, the shorter the stubble. So like really fine bluegrass, you're really shaving it right off the ground, like a golf green. And if you want to maintain a lawn, you have to use that look. How high would it have to be so it has enough strength to stand up to scything? You can mow a half inch grass. How good that is for the grass, I don't know. Yeah, we, uh, in St. Louis, when we lived in the city, we I black mulched all my grass and then uh, planted clover. And uh, whenever it got a little high, I'd let the chickens on it for a day and that would bring it down enough. Right. <laughs> that was about all I needed to do to take care of my lawn. I used to have geese and I think mowing lawns is a horrible waste of time. So I'd rather just let my geese do it. Yeah, there's a commons across from where we live, and uh, I was hoping like it was a true commons, and then I was going to buy sheep and graze them on it. But it used to be a commons, now it's a park owned by the city. However, they do contract out for mowing, and there's a three-acre plot that's right now just in cornfield that's adjacent to it, and that rents out. I've been thinking it might be worthwhile to rent out that three-acre plot, do sheep, and see about getting the contract for mowing. It wouldn't be the same, and the town would have to sign on. Oh. So, so I think a lot of people might be okay with it as a test for yeah. a year. Probably have to end up getting a grass blade to clean it up right. around the edges. You must be one of the three or four major distributors in the U.S. for Austrian and Italian sides. There's three others in the U.S. and there's one in Canada. I think altogether the European size equal the American size, all to the hardware stores. And hmm. Amazon, so. <laughs> so how do you adjust the handles to your height? What's the, is there like a rule of thumb? Traditionally they say the lower grip should be at your greater control canter or a couple inches higher and then the space between the lower grip and the upper grip should be one cubit. The distance between your elbow and your tip of your finger. So it's standing up straight right next to you. And that's just a general guideline. Uh -huh. uh, these are adjustable so you can fine tune them. So when you're scything is there a muscle region that generally gets sore. When you're doing a lot of short trimming strokes, that's very heavy use of your right arm forearm. However, when you're mowing an open area with a full 180 degree stroke, the work becomes quite balanced between left and right. So if you're doing it about right, where should you be sore? <laughs> when you're done, if you're not in shape for it. You should just be tired. <laughs> okay, so it should be more like going for a long, long walk or okay. an up and down hill. And okay. You're just tired all over. Okay, so if you're feeling a lot of tiredness in one particular muscle area, then you might be doing something, your stroke might be wrong or your adjustment might be wrong? Yeah. A lot of women ask me, you know, obviously I'm a big guy, can a petite woman mow as well? I say, yeah, it's like riding a bicycle. You can't ride my bike, but get one your size, mm -hmm. you can ride just fine. Right. So get a side your size, you right. shorter blade, shorter snap. Doesn't matter what size you are, if you get the size size that fits you. And I suppose the, the swath that you can do as a six foot you said six four. Yeah. Your arm span is a lot even larger than mine. Uh, so your reach I guess would be it looks about to be six four. <laughs> your swath is proportional to your height. Uh, with a field blade I would be mowing more uh, ten to twelve feet. Is it better in the morning? Well, it's a little damp, or in the afternoon when it's dry? Well, it depends. Uh, grass, especially fine grass, much easier in the morning. Ah. Whereas thick stems like goldenrod, it's just extra heavy and wet, perfect cutting at all. So you rent, when you run workshops, are those like a day-long affair? Uh, half day, uh, usually from 1 to 5, and um, the next one's September 9th. And you run, you run them here? At... The next one's going to be at Cub Farm, about 20 minutes from here. Something I want to 
I'll show you my idea for one side revolution. That's way out in the field. The reason I wanted a scythe, I got into scything, was I wanted a way to cut my own hay and straw for mulch for no-till gardening. So I was mowing, I was walking into my hay field, mm -hmm. making hay, dragging it. I was used to do, load up a garden cart and drag the garden cart back to the garden and sure. the hay be bouncing on the cart. And sure, sure. Eventually I figured out just it was easier to throw it on a tarp and drag the tarp and yeah. bounce out. And then I would lay out my mulch garden bed and then uh, I would try to mow in between the garden beds with my push mower because it was such a small space. Right. And that lumpy clay soil would just make the mowers bounce Bounce, bounce. It was just really hard to make a push on more work. And, uh, and I thought, oh, it's too bad I can't mow it with a scythe. Then I go, ah, well, I got the space here. So why don't you put all your garden beds a size stroke apart? Then I can mow ah. the garden with a scythe. I can mow the grass with a scythe, and instead of dragging hay from the field, it would be right there. I can do oh, that's that smart. So I had a whole bunch of garden beds. They were three by, I think, eight feet by a scythe stroke apart. And then I have what looked like a cemetery. I suppose. <laughs> Three by eight plots. A size stroke apart. It would have worked fine as a garden, but it kind of bothered me. So I changed the shape and spacing so that it looked less cemetery-ish. And that was my the gardens by my house, vegetable gardens. But over time, as I was learning how to make hay and by the best weather predictions, sometimes my hay would just get ruined and I'd be raking and turning and raking and turning it and then have to get out of the field and compost sure. it somewhere and and um, one day it occurred to me you know why do I even need to drag anything back to the house why not turn my field into these long lines of mulch and if the hay doesn't turn out throw it onto the mulch pile okay. and if it does I'll you know put in my haystack and then later on when it's manured mulch then I'll put that back in the garden. So I started this idea I called windrow gardening. Two side strokes apart I would create a line of mulch oh, okay. and in the line of mulch you can plant things. Uh, Potatoes work really well. Uh -huh. Pumpkins work well. You had mentioned growing pumpkins. And I would graze my geese. When something wasn't there that they would eat in sure. the mulch lines, I would graze my geese through the whole fields. So you basically uh, walk around with the target bed on your left side, so as you mow, your windrow gets dumped right next to it? Yeah. To improve soil fertility, I've been putting down cover crops of buckwheat. That's the white blossom. So in between, I've been experimenting with seeding it on the bare ground after I've mown. And that comes up fairly well. Um, I think what works better is the one straw revolution idea. Before I mow, like a week or so, mm -hmm. I toss out the seed. And then I mow, and then very quickly, it, it's, oh, it's had suppose. time to germinate while it's still right. shaded and, and get a little bit of start. And then less lead up time for it to get going. Yeah, and, ah. and less time for the soil to dry out. I suppose you mostly, like you said, mostly potatoes and pumpkins and squashes and things. I can grow anything, tomatoes, whatever. So anyway, here's what's left of a potato plant I planted. Let's see if we got anything. Oh yeah. Instead of mounding and hilling potatoes. Oh wow. And they were just right under the straw then, yeah. or under the hay. Will they have some deeper down too that you'll have to dig for? Probably. I don't think so. No. Near the end of our time at One Side Revolution, we headed back to his workshop where he showed me the ins and outs of peening, which is basically cold hammer percussion to draw out and smooth uh, a used scythe edge. What's the name of the peening book? Dangeln. Dangeln. Oh, is that the German word for peening? Yes. Outside of my vocabulary currently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you want a stump that'll hold your anvil at the height 
of the top of your thighs so you can see oh, okay. the blade. Mm -hmm. And you say about after 10 to 15 hours of use? Well, it depends on what you're mowing. Oh, okay. How much you're honing away. I suppose the longer you do this, the less often you need to peen right. because you're, you're just touching it up because you're catching less crap in your blade. Yeah. So I suppose an anvil like this, you might see it at an antique store and they wouldn't even know what it is. Well, they call it Dengelstutz. I had to leave pretty shortly after this, but it was nice to be able to get a little bit of a hands-on experience with the scythe as I purchased it. If you happen to be within driving distance of Eau Claire this weekend, Botan is leading a workshop at Cup Farm, and you can find all the information for that at onesivetherevolution.com. There you can also find ordering information and contact information for Botan. Thanks again to Botan for taking the time to chat with me a couple weekends ago and give me all this great information and audio uh, for the podcast today. Let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. Uh, Hurricane Harvey has dominated the headlines and uh, Hurricane Irma will likely dominate next week's headlines. And of course, uh, climate change has been a conversation that many uh, newscasters and pundits have brought up. And of course, the mantra goes that climate change doesn't cause any one specific storm or event, but it does exacerbate them. Basically, the mechanism by which hurricanes are exacerbated is that uh, hurricanes are fed by hot conditions, uh, especially hot seawater. And so as the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic are warmer than usual this year, the hurricanes have extra energy to feed them. Uh, another uh, upside, I guess, for destructive hurricanes is hot air holds more moisture than cold air. So they're able to pull more moisture out of the sea and then come on land with more and more water. While climate change may not have caused specifically these two storms, it probably made them worse. In addition, Houston is a huge petrochemical city. There's tons of processing of oil, as well as other chemicals. Uh, we saw the explosion of the French-owned plant, the flooding of Superfund sites, and the general uh, disarray caused by Harvey. So the, the waters are not only high, but they are awash in petrochemicals. So that can cause knock-on effects down the road uh, that we're only beginning to contemplate. Uh, this kind of coincides with uh, problems of making such infrastructure on the coast. While it makes good sense to have a port with these processing facilities in a logistical sense, it adds risk because coasts are more vulnerable to hurricanes and other ocean-borne disasters. Similar to Fukushima Daiichi in Japan, putting a nuclear power plant on a coast leaves it vulnerable when tidal waves come in. And I think one of the most important articles or opinion pieces that was put out this week talks about the understatement, the systematic understatement of risk by scientists. And uh, this article on uh, resilience discusses how scientists are very careful and they speak with very measured language about climate change, its effects and likelihoods. And these measured statements to a normal person don't sound that dire because there's lots of qualifications and lots of mitigating statements within these statements to say that this is a possibility and um, there are many variables and we're not exactly sure which is scientifically valid and appropriate. When a non-scientist reads that it really downplays the danger that climate change poses for us as a society. And this article uh, discusses how we might express these scientific findings in a more common way in order to spur change. 
Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the low-tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Uh, This week has been a busy one playing catch-up. We are creating a berry labyrinth in our backyard because we have so many wild raspberries instead of trying to eradicate them and then planting domesticated raspberries we thought why not pick the heaviest raspberry area and make that into a permanent raspberry patch. I'll have a discussion of this coming up on the blog. I'm also preparing beds for next year using a no-dig method where you smother areas where you plan to put in a garden bed with dense vegetable clippings, vegetation clippings, grass clippings, things like that. And then that smothers the existing vegetation and creates a layer of rich organic material for next year. I'll also create a blog post about this in the coming weeks. If you're in the Madison area this weekend, you can see me at the 25th Annual Heritage Festival at the Schumacher Farm Park. Uh, I'll be doing shingle splitting demonstrations and making oaken shingles the old-fashioned by hand way. That runs from 12 noon to 5 p.m. at the Schumacher Farm Park on Sunday. We'll be at the Wisconsin Sheep and Wool Festival this coming weekend where we'll be recording another podcast, so keep an ear out for that in the coming weeks. And we should be announcing in the next week or two at least two or three upcoming workshops. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, If you haven't joined the listserv already, you can do that. Information for joining the listserv is on our website. Uh, You can also get most of the announcements by following our blog. All of that can be found at lowtechinstitute.org. There you can also find information about membership support for the Institute. That's it for this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Julia Delaney, off the self-titled album from Slantia. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. The Low Technology Institute is a 501c3 research organization supported by members, grants, and underwriting. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute, membership, and underwriting at lowtechinstitute.org. You can follow us on Twitter and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks and take care. If you're going to maintain a lot of the side. Sorry, Yoda's, just, Yoda's your cat's name? Yeah. <laughs> it's like pouncing on... Grasshopper. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I got distracted. <laughs> a good cat for... Uh... <laughs> I grew up with it. <laughs> He thinks it's a game.